This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce, and today we are recording our show in Phoenix, Arizona. We are at the American Bar Association Tort Trial and Insurance Practice and Labor and Employment Law Section uh, meeting on the emerging emerging issues in workers' compensation. Uh, my guest today is a young lady that I had the pleasure of hearing address our group, and I thought that she would make an excellent uh, guest on Workers' Comp Matters. Her name is Jody Harris. Jody is from Iowa. She is a lawyer, but um, she practiced for a short while and decided she would rather be a private investigator. She worked in insurance claims. She's a graduate of Iowa State and Iowa Uni University of Iowa Law School. And uh, she is now a manager of Blue Eagle Investigations, and they do workers' compensation surveillance, uh, primarily workers' compensation surveillance, in Iowa and other states in, in the Midwest. And as you know, uh, if you've listened to Workers' Comp Matters in the past, first of all, you know I'm a, a claimant's attorney, although I am sensitive to the issues of fraud that exists in the workers' compensation system. And we've done a prior show on fraud, and we've discussed uh, not only fraud from the standpoint of the claimant, him or herself, but from the standpoint of uh, on the employer end. Employers that are without workers' comp insurance when they should be, employers who misclassify their employees either as independent contractors or in jobs that are lower, um, produce lower rates uh, for premium. And as a claimant attorney, I can't tell you how many, it used to be, I hate to date myself, eight millimeter film I used to look at, Polaroid photos of, that I used to look at more recently. I've got boxes and boxes of videotapes, and now, of course, we're getting DVDs of surveillance. And it is one of the most vexing uh, situations I have in talking to my clients uh, who, if and as surveillance is done right, they won't know it has happened. Um, uh, perhaps it's a uh, symptom of, of the lack of professionalism of some of the investigators out there, but it be, it's painfully apparent very early on to some of my clients that they're being followed, that they're getting phone calls, that their neighbors are being talked to, and well, we can debate the pros and cons of the, ethic, the ethics of doing this, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but it is something that is part of the claim. Those of us who represent injured workers do tell our clients that don't change the way you live, you're not under KGB surveillance, but it is likely that somewhere along the line, the insurance company is going to want to see what you're doing in those unguarded moments. So we're going to talk about that, and Jody is going to share with us some of her secrets and strategies, uh, not uh, so that we can educate our clients how to look out for it, because they're not as smart as she is, I think. Uh, but she's going to entertain us with some of the stories of uh, some of the interesting situations she's been in. Jody, welcome to Thank Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you. Uh, let me, let's just start with, why are you doing this? You're an attractive young lady who's got a law degree and you work in the insurance industry. You know, why are you sitting in a van 8 or 10, 12 hours a day with a video camera uh, following my clients around? Well, um, as we talked about in the meeting yesterday, it's, it, my parents would 
much rather like me to be practicing in a in an office building so they could brag about their daughter being a successful lawyer. Um, I like it because uh, stress-wise, um, I'm only out. I only deal with the clients for maybe a, the claimants maybe a month at a time. I do my best and then I move on to the next file. Um, when I was in an office, you know, you dealt with them for these cases for years. Sometimes um, I did not like that. And I'm kind of a different individual where I wanted to actually be hands-on and catch um, catch the people. I had a situation where I went out with an SIU person when I was working um, in the insurance industry. SIU, I guess, a special investigation special unit. Special investigation unit. He brought me, it was a slip and fall, and he brought me with him to kind of go over his investigation. And um, we sat outside of a neighborhood that was very ethnic, and we stood out very much so, and we actually got busted. We just sat outside and were just observing to see if we could actually do surveillance on him in the future, not us, but hire it out. And the rush of getting people coming to your car um, was fun, but that's kind of how I got interested in it and then followed up. Okay. And I will say, you know, my biases aside, uh, those of us who represent injured workers uh, appreciate uh, the impact that a claim that is not legitimate, that it is being faked or feigned uh, for secondary gain, uh, diminishes the work I have to do. Right. It diminishes uh, the benefits available for the truly deserving clients. And the only bones p to pick I have are sometimes the, the clumsy or invasive ways it's done. And, and uh, I think Jody uh, works for a company that, that does what they have to do. They, they, they do it in the right way. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, what are the different types of investigations that take place in the typical workers' comp case? First of all, is everybody that's out of work for an ongoing period of time, six, eight weeks, two or three months, uh, can they expect to be surveilled? Um, I don't think they can expect to be surveilled. I think that companies, insurance companies, at least the ones that we work with in the Midwest, have to document their files fairly well. It's usually... Um, that there are several indicators or the employer has had previous run-ins with the same employee. Um, no, I would say that, you know, maybe only five to 10% are ever that go to litigation that go that far or ever have surveillance done on them. And is surveillance, um, uh, the, the investigation of last resort, do you do other things perhaps less expensive and less invasive? Uh, I know I've dealt with telephone pretexts and neighborhood checks, activity checks is different right. uh, terms in the vernacular. Right. Those are all things that we can do beforehand. If a client wants to know if or if they want surveillance maybe to be better, they not don't know anything about the claimant, um, they may want to do an activities check, a background check, um, things like that beforehand just to see um, if if surveillance would even be effective. What are the what are some of the early signs or tip-offs that would lead an insurance claims representative to contact Blue Eagle and say, you know, we really think something is amiss here? Um, claimants demanding um, fast action. Um, P.O. boxes um, that they've changed their address down to a P.O. box. Um, they, they had a you know, Friday afternoon or a Monday morning claim. Um, That's an injury that occurred right. on either side of right, the weekend. Right, on either side of the weekend. Um, and a lot of it is just suspicion, I think, by the, the actual employer that maybe tells the insurance company that something's amiss. Now, um, do you also find that insurers uh, ordering surveillances uh, not only to uh, catch somebody uh, collecting benefits when they should not be, but to document the file to justify 
perhaps are paying a settlement that is justified by the medicals, but they want to make sure that they're not second-guessed later? Well, actually, a lot of our surveillance is um, not that they maybe suspect something, but they just want to know. So they'll say, we just want you to observe their movements. Um, I did some work for a trucking company, and the only time that they ever had eyes on a claimant was when they had them come in for an IME. So they would have them fly in from all over our country to a centralized place for an IME. That's a medical exam by an independent, insurance doctor. Right, yeah. independent medical exam. And, you know, I would call them and say, this guy really limps. And she, the adjuster would say, I'm not denying that he has an injury. I just, this is the only chance I'll ever get to see him move. And that is very important to me in making my evaluation. It's not that I don't believe that he had an injury or that he's still limping or hurt. I just need to make eyes and just see his movement. Now, is the goal uh, of your investigation surveillance to find that somebody's working under the table when they're otherwise supposed to be disabled? That is one of our goals. Otherwise, um, you know, we're just monitoring their activity, whether it's, you know, they say they have a back injury and they're at Walmart shopping and can pick up a case of water um, and they tell their employer that they can't even breathe because their back hurts so bad. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen. So not only is it working, but just monitoring their other activities, maybe their social activities um, outside as well. All right. When I think of surveillance, I think of somebody being followed in a car, somebody being photographed or videotaped or uh, looked at with binoculars. How invasive, and, and uh, let's talk about privacy issues. Okay. How invasive are you allowed to be, and what ethical constraints are upon you, both in terms of your profession as an investigator and also keeping in mind the attorney-client relationship and the litigation uh, posture of a claim? Right, and as you mentioned earlier, if surveillance is done correctly, the claimant's never going to know that you're there. Um, if we're watching them on their house. We are parked in, on a street. Um, we are one of companies that we think that we do it the right way where we're sitting in the back seat. We have all of our windows blinded out. Um, we're not in the front with a, you know, with a video camera so the neighbors can see us taping everybody. So we try and be as least intrusive as we can, not only on the claimant, but the neighborhood. Um, we don't want police. We don't want to scare public. We don't want people thinking that we're kidnappers um, in a minivan. Um, by the way, I've had calls from clients on each and every one of those issues. Right, right. And so um, if the situation arises that we we kind of do it on a case-by-case -case basis, but most of the time if we're in an area, a community will call the police and let them know that we are out there just so that the public doesn't think that we are there doing bad things. Um, I brought up an example yesterday where they had a bank robbery. Um, three three years beforehand and we were in town and we had notified the sheriff's office um, but the bank was so upset of, about a strange vehicle being in town that they actually locked the doors and let customers in one at a time so we try and be as least intrusive as we can um, when claimants are represented we do not pretext their home we do not do door knocks we're very um, um, careful of their rights. Pretext their home, I think, means going to the home either in person or by telephone and engaging them in conversation. Right, right. Um, we don't do any, a lot of times if I'm doing a, an unrepresented claimant and I want to know that they're home, that they're actually living there, if I don't see them by day one, the second day I will do a door knock and um, pretend I've lost my dog just to see if someone's home. Um, I don't ever enter their house. I would never enter a claimant's house. Um, or we do a, you know, a pretext by phone a, a, during the election, we do political polls, um, and those work just to, a lot of times people will tell you they don't have time for you, we'll do a sales call, stuff like that. But when if they're represented, we do not do any of that while they're at home. 
I'm, I'm just going to direct this question to you or this comment to you. I don't know if it'll come out in the context of a question, but this, this, this is what I hear. Uh, my client, man or woman, uh, husband or wife, parent of children, went to work healthy one day, got hurt, and he is suffering a very painful injury. Now he's getting 60% of his pay. He's having sometimes having trouble getting his prescriptions filled uh, or getting doctor visits. He doesn't know how he's going to make the mortgage payment. And uh, the insurance company is questioning the claim. They're making him go to the administrative agency. And through all of that, he is now being followed and he's being questioned and his integrity is being questioned. And there are phone calls and uh, he's afraid to go out. Uh, how do I and I, I know what I tell him. Right. Uh, how do you in, in doing what you do come to grips with the fact that you've got a lot of people out there that are hurt and hurting and that that this is just another um, injury that they're suffering. It may not be the same type of traumatic injury, but somehow their uh, uh, privacy or dignity is being impacted by being sus under suspicion. We usually don't have that issue because by the time it usually gets to us, there's enough good information that this is maybe a fraudulent claim. We usually it does happen that we see people that are using their walker, you know, will do a door knock and they're using their walker or their cane when they answer the door for us. And then we follow them for a couple of days and they're still using that. We report all of that back. Yeah. We, we and, and, and as an attorney, I don't always see that. And right. a lot of times right. that information would help me in the presentation of the case. But that's exactly what I tell my clients. Right. I said, look, at it's unfortunately, it's part of the system. And it isn't your fault. It's the fault of the fraudulent people who came right. before you who poisoned the well for you. And it makes it a little easier for me to sort of soothe over uh, because I know for me I wouldn't want somebody outside my house I mean if I were working under the table and somebody's outside my house well I deserve it uh, tell us the type of technical equipment that you use my clients ask me oh, are they going to bug my house are they going to have parabolic mics that can listen to me talking to my wife in the bedroom uh, are they hidden cameras are they in my bushes what what do you do and what do you don't what do you not do okay um, the, our main source of equipment is our regular video camera. It's a normal Sony camera. Anybody could buy it at Best Buy. It doesn't have infrared. It doesn't have night vision. We don't have anything like that. Um, so that's our normal. It's just a Sony camera that all of us use. Um, that's our normal standard camera. We have hidden cameras that we take into stores. They look like cell phones. Um, they even have the bars on them like a cell phone would to show you reception and stuff like that. Other than that, that's our main sources of equipment. Um, we do not have any infrared technology. Like I said, we don't hide in bushes. We will not trespass on your property to get film. We need to be in a public place. Um, there was an example today in the conference about um, uh, a neighbor called in a tip and the neighbor let the investigator in her house and she was, um, the claimant was at the pool with her kids doing all sorts of activities at the pool, but there was a privacy fence blocking that off um, and the, the neighbor, the tipster allowed the investigator to go up to the second floor of her house and videotape from there. I don't think that's something that we would ever do because there's a privacy fence, there's privacy laws. We're not sticking a ladder over your over your privacy fence and getting film. Um, we're pretty respectful of those situations. And from my experience, and I, I have a background as do you in insurance claims, I have found while well, the adage is good fences make good neighbors, Good neighbors make good sources right, right, for do. insurance companies. And ex 
espouses. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I would venture to say in my experience, uh, when I would review surveillances or activity checks, the information from a neighbor uh, that doesn't like uh, the guy down the street or knows he's out on comp and uh, it, it irritates that person. Right. Usually when we do an activities check, we do it on a pretext. So maybe it'll be a job background um, check that we're doing, something like that, the appropriate pretext for that neighborhood. And um, every once in a while, a neighbor will catch on to kind of what you're doing and they'll be very angry and they'll say, "What if you're doing a work comp investigation, you can park at my house, you can use my bathroom, you can do all these things. And um, so usually a, a neighbor... Uh, if they're if they're arguing is a good source of information. Uh, give us an example of some of your more interesting cases. I mean, you talked about a couple the other day. Um, we've had I've done I've worked for the company for two and a half years, and in that time I've done two Ultimate Fighters. Um, one had a bilateral shoulder injury, and um, we found on not his Facebook, but a friend of his through Facebook's. Um, webpage, we found a poster of him advertising the next fight. We went to the fight and I videotaped um, his fight. It was 22 seconds and he knocked the guy out. Um, And what's interesting about that was he actually worked in his hometown. He lived in the town and he fought in the same town. And the fact that he was still bold enough to ultimate fight in that town was a little wake up call for me. And it was one of my first cases. Um, I had another ultimate fighter that was not represented. and I called him as a, on a pretext under a reporter. He invited me to go watch their training session. And this is somebody who had had an injury is out collecting because he's not able to work. Right. He had a right knee injury. Um, and the employer noted before before he had his injury that he was an ultimate fighter. She saw him in the paper. So when they decided to, when after he had this injury and they had some other factors, um, he had doctored his own doctor's note. He had changed the restrictions on his doctor's note. Employer found out about it, let him go, and said, you know, now it's time to do surveillance on him. We, um, and again, he hadn't had an attorney, so I called him, and he invited me into his training session. We had three hours of film that night of him training for a right knee injury, and he would hit the bag with his right knee and do all these ultimate fighting moves. And then we later went and saw him fight, and he had an extensive bout with another individual. No problem with the knee? No problem with the knee. Now, a couple of times he did. He did actually ice the knee during the training session, um, and I did videotape that as well, just to show that we videotape everything. Um, he, he said, you know, he did have a prior knee injury. He didn't, ex- he didn't go into it as to what happened, but, um, I did videotape him icing his knee, but again, that's not going to hurt the insurance company because it shows the activities that he's doing in his training are problems with his knee, maybe, um, exclusive of the work comp injury. Now, a couple of times in answering your question, you mentioned uh, that the claimant wasn't represented by an attorney. What, what what does that change, in fact, mean in terms of what you are able to do or what you do do? If the claimant was represented by an attorney, I definitely wouldn't have called him. Because? Because um, that is ex parte communication. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. That sounds um, like a lawyer talking. <laughs> I hope your parents are listening. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I would not have, I would not have um, called him. I might still have gone into, once I saw him in the training session, I might still have gone into the gym and, we, and asked, not him, but maybe another staff member who I, and there were several fighters there. I may have asked the owner of the gym if I could do a story on ultimate fighting. That, because he entered a public forum, I think I would be okay entering that public forum with my either equipment or just observing, I think I would be okay. 
All right. You know, at this point, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about how uh, changes in today's society and changes in today's technology uh, help you and change the way uh, that you do your work. And perhaps you can give us some illustrations. You had mentioned Facebook before, and that's something we're going to explore uh, a little bit further. So we'll be right back with Jody Harris. Need to communicate with your non-English speaking clients? Call Benoit Language Services. We have interpreters and translators throughout the USA, so you are able to converse quickly and effectively with your clients. We cover all legal matters, medical appointments, and statements. We offer telephone interpretations, written translations, and handle all proceedings at the Department of Industrial Accidents. Benoit Language Services, dedicated to the art of communication. Call us for a free quote at 1-800-261-5152 or visit BenoitInc.com. That's B-E-N-O-I-T-I-N-C.com. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Curran at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Alan Pierce, and we're chatting with Jody Harris about her life as a private investigator. Uh, we've all grown up with television. I, I know that you made reference to Magnum PI. I go back a little further to I go back even before Mannix. I, I hate to say it. I go back to Richard Diamond, uh, and you probably don't even know who he is. No, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, the the old inve- investigating tricks, uh, the, the phone calls the surveillance and and the photography or videography. Things have changed now. They have changed. People don't have landlines. People have cell phones. People have uh, caller ID uh, and blocks on their calls. Um, How have you had to adapt to that change? As investigators, um, we've realized that even though you block your cell phone, your personal cell phone, um, that sometimes that number still pops up. So in order to protect us, in order to protect the integrity of the investigation, we now use um, pretext phones, um, either um, a separate Walmart you know, that you buy to, if we're gonna pretext somebody, we use that basically to protect us. So your phone number comes up. A phone number comes up, um, and then some of us have applications on our phones that can change the number that comes up to also protect us. You mentioned Facebook earlier, and we are seeing a proliferation of all sorts of social networking, which have, uh, and YouTube, and, and right. uh, there's photos and, and uh, uh, videos and dialogue and chat and tweets, and I can't even keep up with it. It seems to be changing daily. Uh, how have you been able to utilize that? 
Facebook, MySpace, um, Craigslist, those are all things that we routine, routinely check. Um, first thing, one of the first things we do when we get a new case is, is we Google them. Have they been in the paper? Um, we Google the claimant and we found out that he was in a fishing tournament and was supposed to be a perm total. Um, couldn't get out of bed every day. Well, when we Googled him, we found him in the paper with a big fish. And um, that led us to go to the fishing places around his area and we said we were collecting data um, for, um, we were gonna rank all the fishermen in the state. And we just were wondering if they had any data on their tournaments and they thought it was a fantastic idea so everybody gave us their data. We now had proof that he had been fishing for the last year and had you know, been a decent prize winner. And um, well, Craigslist, tell us uh, how you utilize Craigslist. Craigslist, if a claimant is working on, for cash under the table, if they have unique services, if they're a mechanic, if they're kind of a heater, plumbing kind of industry, anything that they can do for cash, they may advertise theirs on Craigslist. I had a claimant that um, was he was working for a heating and plumbing company, said he couldn't do his job, but he had an advertisement on Craigslist. Um, and it was him and another guy. Both their cell phone numbers were on there. I called one of the cell phone numbers, just happened to get the other guy. Um, went to an abandoned house, a house that was for sale. I kind of did some pre-surveillance on it and realized that the people weren't living there. So I called them to that address and both of them showed up and the claimant just happened to pick up his toolbox out of the back of the truck and they went to the door and approached the door. And that was enough to show that even he can work as a you know, a heating repairman. Um, he's doing it on the side. He obviously came to a, a call that we called him on. Um, so you can do searches on Craigslist. You can search for their cell phone numbers, just kind of general searches as well. And I assume a successful investigation obviously leads to either a reduction or elimination of benefits or lowest settlement values ever lead to criminal prosecution? Um, not in the states that we we work, not in the Midwest. It's, it hasn't actively led to prosecution on, I think, maybe one or two that we've done work on. Um, so it's not an active criminal um, environment. You find this dangerous work or uncomfortable work? Um, I find it exciting. I find it definitely when I'm in um, contact with a claimant, um, the ultimate fighter, um, you know, taking bowling lessons from a claimant that's a bowling Bull. instructor. Um, those things are fun. They're exciting. Um, I do not find it particularly dangerous. Uh, that's my dad says I can no longer tell him stories because he worries about me. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm in my vehicle, I feel the most safe. Um, People, I've had a claimant leaning up against the window I'm taping out of and not realize I'm there. So in my vehicle, I feel completely safe that I'm okay. How much time do you spend in your vehicle on a surveillance? On, on surveillance, our typical days are eight hours, but you, I've worked 20 hours before. Um, I was in Illinois working a case and the claimant took off to Tennessee. And um, it was an hour before my shift, so that day I pulled the 20 hour day. And uh, all the creature comforts in, in your uh, in your van? Our van should be fully stocked before we ever head out on surveillance because you know that you may be there with no water, no food, no um, bathroom facilities. So, You ever been found out and confronted? I've not been. I followed a claimant that the physical therapist tipped him off. And um, he then took me on a very strange route through all these um, rural neighborhoods. And he went into a neighborhood and I waited for him to, to get settled in that neighborhood and then I was gonna find his car from there. And um, about you know, 15 minutes after I entered the neighborhood, I went looking for him and he ended up in an alley and um, came up behind me. 
and he called the adjuster with my license plate number. So, um, and he did make some threatening um, driving with me and the adjuster immediately called me and told me it's time to get out because he has threatened you. He said that he knew you were a woman and he took you on abandoned roads for a reason. Um, but, you know, again, I'm in my car and we just pull off. When you go do a neighborhood surveillance in a residential area, uh, there's, a, there's a potential to raise suspicion. I've had clients, uh, I've had people call and say, neighbors have called them and said there's a strange car. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had people say that uh, their wife or children were followed driving the kids to school. I've had client, a, a female client who had a restraining order against uh, a, a boyfriend and was under surveillance okay. and was scared stiff that uh, she didn't know. Uh, they usually first call the police. Uh, That's I know in Massachusetts, um, it's good practice and most of the legitimate investigation firms check in with the local police. Um, tell us whether that's, is that required? Is that something you do? It's not, it's not something that's um, technically required. It is a professional courtesy. Um, the police appreciate it. If it's a small, small town where the claimant has the same name as a sheriff, it may not be appropriate to call the police and let them know, but it is something that we usually do as a professional courtesy. And again, the police aren't going to tell you why we're there, but they'll at least say that we're aware of the vehicle, we've checked it out, and they're okay. What type of pretext, uh, what do you do to, uh, to know when to follow somebody? I mean, you can stay there from five in the morning and hope they go out, but uh, I, I know there are certain techniques that you use. You mentioned earlier to you know when you, you were tipped off by a physical therapist or whatever, but or, or somebody going to an, a medical exam. Uh, how do you get somebody out of the house and in, in, in a place where you can see them? There, there's. I mean, we can't make. We always say we can't make claimants dance. And if a claimant, if it's bad weather, um, if the client doesn't give us good information, kind of on the days they do, and we can't find anything out on them through our own investigation. There are often times where we're out there and nothing happens for two days. Um, so we can't make them dance. Good times to target surveillance if, if your claimant isn't active um, on their own is medical appointments, depositions, things like that. At least they may come out in the public and do some other things while they're doing those as well. Um, but yeah, we, we can't really get them out of the house with a pretext or anything. That would be entrapment. All right, because I know, I, and this has to be an investigator trick, because I've heard it from too many of my clients. They get the phone call that there's a package waiting for them, it's misdelivered, and it's over at the post office, or it's over at another address, and out they go to get it, and there's no package there. Right. Not that's, in your that, That's something that we do not do. No, no, no. I think that would, I think that would cross some ethical lines, um, entrapment. And I've had clients ask me, and I told them, to my knowledge, uh, no investigator would do it. No insurance company would pay for it, never mind the illegality of it. But I've had more than one say, could they put a tracking device on my car? There are, there are companies that do that. And I think in the work comp field is completely inappropriate. Um, if you are having problems, if an investigator company is having problems following somebody, there are other ways to handle that with two investigators. Um, but that I, I feel in the work comp um, in Iowa, bad faith is a big thing. I think that's completely inappropriate. I don't think it should be done. There's a firm that does it quite often, and they advertise that they do it. They get excellent surveillance results because <laughs> I guess they would because they are not you know they know where the claimant's going. Um, but I find it completely unprofessional. I think most clients would be very hesitant to do it. Um, this company brags that they will do it. They'll go up to the the vehicle that's in, parked in the claimant's driveway and put it on. Um, and we all, 
our Iowa Private Association, our group is against it. Most people don't, I mean, wouldn't even consider it. Um, so we don't do it. We don't have the equipment to do it. Um, in domestic cases, if a client wants it done, there are cheaper, easier ways to do it than to go out and buy a fancy GPS device on there. Well, Jody, I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us this afternoon. Uh, tell us what states you operate in. Give a little plug for your uh, company and yourself. Okay. And again, I am um, with Blue Eagle Investigations. Um, we do Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and we are based out of Kansas. So we've been in Kansas for a good 15 years. My boss started the company. Um, he's done it. He still goes out and does surveillance. Um, we are on the web if you want to look us up. It's www.blueeagleinvestigationswithaness.com. And, and you're licensed? I, we we, uh, we are, didn't talk about licensure, but I think that's a right, very important right. issue as well. Um, every investigator that we have in going into a state is completely licensed. Um, we are all licensed, insured, bonded. So we haven't, um, states also require that you have insurance. We have all that. What's harder to pass, the bar exam or the licensing exam? It depends on the state. Um, I passed the Iowa bar the first try. It took me two tries to pass the Illinois um, PI license exam. They have a well, very I hope that's because they have very rigid standards. They do, and, and yeah, they do. Well, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters. I, I know that it's a controversial subject. It's an emotional subject. Uh, I think most of us understand that, unfortunately, it is born of necessity, and uh, we are dealing with the wide spectrum of, of humanity. There's good, there's bad, there's fraud. Uh, on both sides of the equation, it's not good for any of us, and it's not good for the people that rightly deserve it. So I want to thank you for being here. You're welcome. And uh, those of you listening, please go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.